Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in the sermon. Our text is not from this chapter, but uh, thought it is helpful to read this in connection with our text. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved of, to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And then we turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read verses 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Satan hates the church. Satan hates uh, the children of God because they have been rescued from his power and uh, they are being renewed in the image of God, which he hates. And uh, whenever people are uh, rescued from his kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear son, well, that undermines that kingdom of darkness and Satan rages against such loss. And uh, he wants you back. Uh, he wants to destroy whoever he can. He's described in scripture as a roaring lion who goes about seeking uh, whom he may devour. And we are involved in spiritual warfare as Christians. Now, that's not the theme of this entire book. Rather, we might say that the theme of this book more accurately is one of peace. Uh, Jesus Christ is our peace. And uh, he made peace through the blood of his cross, reconciling us to God, reconciling us uh, to one another as brothers and sisters. And yet the fact remains that though Christ has been exalted over principalities and powers and every name that is named, and we are secure in him, yet the fact remains that we still must contend with these principalities and powers, at least those dark and evil ones that are described in our text. And we have these enemies, and they're described in such a way as to impress upon us that they are rather dreadful enemies that we face. And we must not forget that. We must not fail to take that seriously. That doesn't mean that we live in terror and fear of them. But it does mean that we need to know them. We need to resist them. We need to stand up and uh, face them. And by the grace of God, we need to defeat their aims against us. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And this morning we consider the fact that we must be strong in the Lord against powerful enemies. And we're going to focus on what this passage teaches about these uh, enemies as they are described here. Uh, and that's a rather dark description, uh, isn't it? And uh, it's not intended uh, to terrify us, but to to make us realistic about the seriousness and the urgency of this spiritual conflict that every Christian is engaged in. And we begin by considering what our text says of the fact that our, our conflict is not a conflict with uh, flesh and blood. Verse 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not fight against uh, fellow, uh, fellow mortals that are defined often in Scripture in this way, as flesh and blood. He works, that is Satan, we read in chapter 2, he works in the sons of disobedience. But we have to realize that uh, though people are the instruments of his schemes and of his power, uh, behind the people involved, there are these wicked spirits. There is these uh, deadly enemies that are that are more deadly, and their aims and intentions are more dreadful than that of people. Uh, for example, say you're you're criticized or or maybe mocked 
on the, on the job because of your Christian confession? What is the aim of those people that want to undermine your faith or ridicule you? Well, they want to maybe get laughs at your expense. Or maybe they want to just uh, expose their sophistication and intelligence against uh, these dumb Christians. They belong to this ship of fools called the church. Uh, maybe they want to silence you. Maybe they want to intimidate you. Maybe they, they want to hurt your reputation before others. Their, uh, their aims might be described in a lot of ways, but, but those aims are largely limited to this world and their relationships with you. But if we compromise our, our conduct and our testimony in response to this kind of opposition, then we actually fall into Satan's aim, which is much more insidious and much more uh, dangerous. And that is to discredit and to silence the Christian testimony in this world. And we need to remember that. We need to remember Satan's role in uh, the opposition that we might face from people. And that will help us also to see them in a biblical way. Not simply as enemies, but to see them as lost fellow human beings that uh, need our compassion. And uh, we want to see them rescued from the same power that otherwise would hold us in its grip if it weren't for Christ. And uh, that's behind what we, we heard in Second Timothy chapter 2, where uh, Paul exhorts Timothy not to be quarrelsome, but to be patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And uh, he describes them as those who have been uh, ensnared by the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. They don't realize that. But that's the truth of their situation. And we'll see that that doesn't mean that they're not responsible, that they're not culpable for their own sins. But the fact is that they are dupes of Satan. They've been enslaved by his lies. And remembering that should make us gracious and humble also in our dealings with them. We need to see the real enemy. We need to see the real enemy uh, really behind uh, a great variety of different kinds of human conflict. Last time I mentioned the fact that in uh, differences or disputes or, or conflicts in marriage, it's very important for Christian husbands and wives to ask themselves, what is the devil's aim in this disagreement or in this conflict? Because we tend to see each other as the enemy and we face off against each other rather than standing side by side and and uh, resisting the devil and his intentions to undermine marriage, to destroy this good institution of God with all the misery and the terrible consequences of that. But we could expand that thought and, and, re- and realize that in all conflicts among Christians, it's important to recognize the devil's intentions in these things. We need to recognize that in church conflicts. And we have to ask the question, What is the devil after? What is his aim? If all we see is other people and their weaknesses and their sins and their failings and their irritations, well, the danger, there are numerous dangers. One of them is self-righteousness because we can imagine that we're so much better than they are. Another is a kind of discouragement that simply looks at people 
Many people uh, fall prey to the, the devil's schemes when they become disheartened by the troubles and problems that they face in the Christian church. Or they may, they, they may succumb to a critical spirit. So their attitude and outlook is, is characterized by criticism rather than charity. Or they just give up. They drop out. They drop out of the life and fellowship of the church because of a cynical attitude towards the people of God. And they don't realize that, that in responding this way to troubles in the church, they're falling prey to Satan's aims. The fact is that in the church, forbearance, long-suffering, patience must be exercised in view of the reality of our remaining sins and weaknesses. It's the very uh, reality of those failings that require and call forth those Christ-like characteristics. And by that, we can thwart the devil's schemes. We need to have faith in God's working in our own lives, despite our persistent sins and failings and weaknesses. And we must have faith also in God's working in the lives of of others, without forgetting the devil's aim. He loves to, to sow discord. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, the church should aim at peace at all costs. You know, that there is a kind of peace of death that is also the result of Satan's uh, work. We don't desire peace at the expense of truth. You know, there are a lot of professing uh, churches that, that pursue that course, right? And... Uh, Whatever doctrines are offensive to human pride, whatever doctrines might cause some division, out the window go those doctrines. And when that happens and that, when that becomes characteristic of a church, well, that's evidence that the devil has already entered the front door. Because the devil is perfectly happy to see peace reign where the cross of Jesus Christ is not proclaimed and the word of God in its fullness is not taught and adhered to, and sometimes contended for. So the goal is not peace at any cost. But at the same time, we must not let the evil one destroy a peace where there is a, a genuine unity in the faith, a unity in the gospel. And that happens when we we think that our conflict is with flesh and blood, and we forget this uh, spiritual dimension of Satan's involvement. Our real enemies are actually more powerful and they're more dangerous than flesh and blood. You know that in the Bible, the, the language flesh and blood is like it's synonymous with human frailty and weakness. The Egyptians are flesh and not spirit. Flesh and blood is a description of, of frailty because flesh and blood can be defeated. Flesh and blood grows old and weak. Flesh and blood may become sick. Flesh and blood might be imprisoned. Flesh and blood uh, might be just removed from the picture altogether. Flesh and blood might go old and, and lose its energy. But our real enemies don't weaken with age. They never lose their energy. They never lose their ability. The old serpent, right? That's how the book of Revelation describes the devil. The old serpent. He's experienced. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Those are Jesus' words. And his aims is not simply to destroy bodies. You know, Jesus 
taught us not to fear those who can kill the body, but to fear God. But it's also true that Satan's aim is to destroy not simply bodies, but souls by his lies. He's more powerful and dangerous than flesh and blood. And we have to remember that in this spiritual warfare. We have to remember that our conflict is with those powerful dark hordes that are that are described there in verse 12. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These enemies are all described uh, in the plural, indicating that there are more than one, and the very language identifies them as an array of spiritual powers at war with Christ and, and with the saints. They are numerous. They're described in, in rather dark and, and fearful terms. Spiritual host of wickedness. Now, again, this doesn't provide us with some neat way of categorizing these evil spirits as if uh, they are cleanly divided into these different descriptions here. That's not the aim. The aim is to impress upon us the formidable nature of these spiritual foes that we face. Evil spirits, demons, those who we know were at one time among the holy angels. They themselves were holy angels. They were created by God and they were created upright. But as the Bible teaches, Belgic Confession confesses that they left their first estate in pride. They rebelled against God, led by Satan, led by Lucifer in pride. Milton expresses the attitude of Satan. He would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And in his pride, he was cast out of heaven with all those that joined him in, in this rebellion against God. And he remains in this world. He remains with a with a power of, of swift movement in the airy realms of this world. Our text refers to the heavenly places in which these powers operate. If you recall, chapter 2 describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air. In some way, it appears that it is this airy region that surrounds this world, which is the domain of this special activity and movement and, and, and power of these evil spirits. There are identified uh, flying spirits, whether they ever become visible or not. And they're to be taken much more seriously than any imagined uh, fear about aliens from other planets visiting us and doing us harm. There are real forces of evil that we're up against. And they serve and promote the darkness of wickedness. In the, in the Psalms, in Psalm 70, it says that the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. Well, that word habitation could be rendered houses. The dark places of the earth are filled with homes of cruelty. There is so much cruelty and evil that takes place behind the closed doors of the houses in our neighborhoods. This is what characterizes the world in which we live, in which horrific deeds take place every day. And many of them are really too, too shameful to 
to describe or to speak of. Chapter 5, verse 12 speaks of things that are too shameful to speak of. Sometimes you hear accounts of uh, the secret lives of people being exposed in such awful ways, requiring law enforcement investigators to, to examine videos and other evidence that is so horrific, leading many of them to mental breakdown as they observe the evil deeds that are performed and perpetrated by human beings. And part of the explanation for that evil is the instigation and the temptation of the wicked one whose aim is to destroy. They're described in ways that indicate that they're vastly numerous. Satan drew a third of the angels down in his rebellion. A third of those which are described in Scripture as as legions, thousands upon thousands, myriads of heavenly hosts. And so there are very, very many wicked spirits that are described in our text. And their numbers, as I said, they're never diminished, right? And they never weaken. If anything, they only grow more experienced, and they're filled with hatred. And our conflict, as our text indicates, is especially with our great enemy, the devil. He's singled out there in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It appears that all the activity of these evil spirits are under the direction that they belong to an organized mob, at the head of which is the adversary himself, Satan. He is the great liar, the slanderer. He slandered God, remember, in the first temptation. Has God said, throwing the word of God into doubt, you shall not surely die, insinuating evil motives to the Almighty, as if he were seeking to withhold some good from Adam and Eve. The devil slanders the saints. The devil likes to stir up slander of every kind. His main strategy, his wiles, is deception, lies. In 1 Timothy, uh, we read in chapter chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. That is, from the Christian faith. They'll abandon it. They'll leave it. And then listen to this explanation. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The devil has a counterclaim to the truth of the gospel. The devil has his own thesis contrary to the declarations of God's revelation of the truth. And he ruins and destroys and murders by his lies. We need to remember that. He is the tempter who moves sinners to follow his will, right? That's what that passage says, that they're taken captive by his will. It's the devil who put it into Judas's mind to betray Jesus, as we're told. It's the devil that moved Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit. It's the devil that even twisted Peter's mind for a time to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke about his sufferings and his crucifixion, Peter took him aside and said, Far be it from you. 
And you remember Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Because he recognized in Peter's opposition to the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he recognized satanic assault against the kingdom of God in just a fundamental way. But then he says, Just Peter, you are an offense to me because you do not mind the things of God, but the things of man. Now, isn't that an interesting kind of combination of thoughts? Peter was minding the things of man. He was reflecting a worldly, humanistic philosophy, contrary to the gospel, contrary to the central work of our Savior. But in thinking in a a human manner, He was a mouthpiece of Satan. Now, this doesn't mean that the devil makes anyone sin, despite the strong language that the scripture used. He works in the sons of disobedience. Yes, he is the one who incites those lusts in chapter 2. It's described. He works in the sons of disobedience. And as a result, by nature, we conduct ourselves according to the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. Why do we do that? Well, at the instigation also and temptation of the wicked one. But that doesn't remove our responsibility. It's still our desires. It's still our sins. used to be a popular slogan years ago, the devil made me do it. As if that's funny or as if it's true. It's not. It's a lie. Satan would like people to think that they are simply victims of evil powers beyond their control, that they have no choice. They can't help it. Well, in some respects, that description is true. They can't help it. That doesn't mean that God can't. It doesn't mean that they have no resources if they have the revelation of God's way of life and salvation. And people are always responsible for their sin, and they're always responsible for their response to the gospel. And this description of Satan's power ought never to uh, lead us to forget that. But the fact remains that no unbeliever can withstand Satan and his hosts. If you are not a child of God this morning, Satan hates you too. But the difference is that you, you do not have any resources to stand against him. He takes the seed of the word out of your heart. You may come under the impressions of the word, but if that word does not enter your heart, if it doesn't change your mind about the word of God, about yourself, about the Lord, one explanation for that is satanic activity. That's what he does with the seed. He removes it from the heart. He's described as the God of this world who blinds uh, your eyes. I'm referring to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Where it says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan beholds us, holds before us, rather, the allure of this world, and he would draw us to pursue its pleasures, its profits, while we lose our own souls. As mentioned from chapter 2, he incites the lust of the flesh. And if you're not a Christian, you're no match for him. You cannot stand against him. You have no chance. You have no hope in yourself to resist him or even seriously want to with any kind of persistence. 
Paul does describe your hope, though, in that passage that we read from 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, rather, where he says, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God, perhaps, will grant them repentance. Repentance is a gift of God, so that they may know the truth. Repentance and coming to the knowledge of the truth go together. And as a result of that, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And you see, when when God works in that way, what happens is that people who are otherwise completely under the power of Satan, they begin to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. They begin to pray for real. They begin to take an interest in the truth. And then they find his mercy and his power and grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. So you might ask the question, is the minister out to scare us this morning? And I hope I already answered that with respect to uh, the children of God. No, that's not my aim. But with respect to anyone who is not a child of God, you bet it is. It most certainly is my intention to make you terrified at your helplessness and your vulnerability before these evil powers. Because they've got a hold of you. They will not let you go. They'll lie you right into hell. And my aim in frightening you is so that you might flee to Jesus Christ. That you might be moved with fear, right? Noah was moved with fear at the reality of judgment to come. And he was so moved as to listen to God, and he took refuge in the ark while the world was destroyed with a flood. And the intention of such teaching to move people with fear before their weakness, before these wicked powers and their own sins that are no match for them, is to bring them to flee to Christ and to take refuge in him because there is certain security and ultimate victory in Christ. He's our only protection and strength. He destroyed the power of Satan at the cross. Colossians, Colossians 2 speaks of that in, in verse 15. It says, having disarmed, look, notice the language, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, a spectacle of their defeat. How? Triumphing over them in it. That is the cross. What Satan probably imagined was his greatest success in moving Judas and the Sanhedrin and all uh, the Gentile rulers to crucify the Son of God. His own head was crushed, and he suffered the defeat of God's wisdom and power. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and he achieved that. And see, brothers and sisters, that's why, that's why I dare to speak this way this morning to you. That's why we dare to sing about these enemies that we face who will be destroyed. Not because they're not strong and fearful and powerful, but in Christ we have security. Imagine a, a former uh, mafia hitman um, becoming a, a star witness for law enforcement. And uh, he is disclosing all the crimes of his mafia boss. He's enumerating the murders that he has committed. He's exposing his strategies. 
he's describing uh, and, I, and identifying, he's fingering all these other mob members. Well, everyone knows that this man's days are numbered if he would do such a thing. Because the word would get out, and when it gets out, there is a mob, there is a host, and there's professional killers that are out to get him, and they'll succeed, very likely, unless maybe he goes into witness protection and he lives this very secretive, quiet life. He keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't talk to anybody about who he is. He doesn't let on his connections. You know, but the most fearful mob, the worst gangsters in this world are nothing compared to the enemies that we face. And here we dare to finger the devil and to speak of his strategies, his crimes, his aims, his wickedness, and his defeat. Us little puny human beings of flesh and blood. How do we dare to do that? Well, brothers and sisters, we're in the witness protection program like none other. And we don't have to keep our mouths shut. We don't have to hide our identity. Because we're servants of this king who has triumphed over Satan. And we can speak the truth. We can bear testimony to our Savior, our King, and glorify him with that testimony. It's because of Christ. Luther said that the devil is God's devil. By that he meant that the devil still serves God's purposes. Oh yes, he has murderous intent. He is great in power, but it's as if he's on, he's on a chain. And he serves God's purpose. Only that. Nothing more. Nothing less. It's a great comfort, isn't it? That doesn't, that doesn't, again, deny the reality of the, of the conflict. That doesn't mean that the devil is a joke. We don't joke about the devil. If he's a mad dog, if he's on a chain, you still don't dance in front of a mad dog. You don't taunt him. He's to be taken seriously. We are in this spiritual warfare. We battle with evil forces. But the battle is the Lord's, and we are secure in Christ. And so we can sing and testify to this great Savior and his defeat of our great enemies, and do so with joy. Amen.